After a year of running experiments, we realized that successful sellers and marketers didn't have the next greatest playbook. They actually had frameworks, insights, and tests that they ran and refined. Welcome to the B2B Power Hour, where we align go-to-market teams together to win the right business with better experiments. I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett, and I'm a seller. And I'm your other host, Morgan Smith, and I'm a marketer. Join us for live shows and interviews that will help you learn what to test so you can sell and market better to your customers and prospects. Now, on to today's episode. So where I thought maybe we could begin, well, let's just start in our respective domains. So sort of not like this is the only way I'm thinking about today, but obviously Leslie, big sales background, Tara, big marketing background. So from each of your experiences, what should onboarding cover when you onboard somebody into your team? Big question. Yeah, it's like just starting with the smallest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, how do you need an elephant one bite at a time? Let's start with the big bite. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Tara, you're in the thick of it. Do you want to kick that question off? Sure. I mean, what comes to mind first is people processes tech. Um, I think you should always start with people having connections and relationships, especially from a marketing end, matter probably the most when you're onboarding because you don't you do not sit in a silo. You don't just sit in your you know little marketing team, or you should not. And so you really need to focus on that role and who they interact with internally um, at the company and make the right intros um, and just get to know people. I think the human element, that's what I've been doing this week is a lot of meet and greets, but just like personal, not just about the role. And some people get very like, well, this is what I'm working on. I'm like, all right, that's great. It's day four. So I just want to also know who you are and your background and what you like and (laughs) personally. So I would always start with people. Processes is huge and having people know that all feedback is good feedback. I think that's one of the best things about onboarding is you have an external perspective. Uh, and no matter what department. So having them take notes, ask questions, ask why, why do we do it this way? Is there a better way? Write down their suggestions, all that. Um, And then the technology I think can be weaved in at different points. For me, I have, I don't know how many systems I'm going to be using, maybe between 12 and 15. (laughs) So I don't have access to all of them right now on day five, but spreading those out, especially within marketing is super important instead of overwhelming people, because you can only handle so much. So that's my answer. I love that. And I love the people processes tech framework. A huge, huge plus one to the the people bit, especially the phrase human element was immediately what popped into my head. And then, you know, a few seconds later came out of, of your mouth. And I, look, I think you make an especially good point that we really want our employees to make the connections that are going to keep them in the job because it's not going to be just the product or the pay that keep them in the job. It's going to be the folks that they work with. We all know that. We've all had to leave a job and leave our work bestie behind. And like, that's the most devastating piece of quitting a job. And, you know, I think particularly in those initial days of onboarding, not only creating the connections that are rooted in human connection that are not like, I don't need, I don't need you to read your JD to me. Like, I just want to know a little bit about who you are as a person. I think that's especially important. And I would also add anything we can do as leaders to make them feel special. So maybe that's as simple as a little like handwritten note 
reminding them why we hired them, why we're so excited to have them on the team. I know some companies have bigger budgets and have like, you know, whole like suede kits that are on the desk or, or get delivered, but anything that just makes it feel extra special and creates that human connection, very powerful. I'm actually a huge fan of peppering in a lot of that tech early on, because I think sometimes that can be a fairly like admin task. And when we're onboarding, we are learning so much and consuming so much. I think often it can feel a bit overwhelming. And so setting some time aside early on to be like, just log in, just log into some things, like just, just set up you know, what you want your laptop to look like. It's it's kind of nice to have that time blocked off where you also don't have to be interacting or consuming or learning or remembering. I'm going to go pull this up too. This is a really great comment that goes with this. Lisa said, I love the people aspect that Tara is referring to. I think it's especially important due to the remote hybrid nature of today's workforce. In addition, focusing on the people aspect helps to more quickly orient the new hire to the organizational, I'm guessing, culture. but. Yeah, Mm -hmm. cut it off right at the end. That's all I could see. Yeah. (laughs) Leslie, I love your uh, addition of making them feel special because everybody has some level of imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter who they they are. I have that right now. (laughs) You know, and my whole background is in marketing and I've done this a few times, but it's still, it's like the fear of the unknown and everything is new. You know, the, the product, the people, the you know, sometimes the systems, and even if you've used a system or a tech, you haven't used it the same way that this company has. And so you just like get in your own head a lot and reminding them, it's like, no, I hired you. I trust you. I believe in you. Like, we're going to do this together goes such a long way because people will feel that throughout the onboarding process. Mm. It's like in the beginning, but it is, it really creeps in at like the 30, 60, 90 days too, because then it's like, then you're working, then you got goals, then you're <laughs> executing, putting things in motion. And then you can always have that in the back of your, your head. So one interesting thing, and it's funny having, we've talked with a lot of enablement managers about this question. We've talked with other executives and leaders. And I think there's, if you scroll the LinkedIn feed for something that's like, what should you cover in the first, there's so much about like knowledge focused, right? Which is what to learn about the company, what to learn about the prospects, who are you marketing to, who are you selling to? And I love that the most bright line we've drawn today is, you know, that's important, but kind of throw that out for a hot second. We got a team to build. And I like that focus because even if, and maybe I'll go to Leslie here then, I feel a lot of the most powerful sales teams we've seen have this like great team dynamic. And I'm sure that that starts with this human first approach to onboarding. So how can sales leaders in particular foster that besides just saying, hey, you should meet this person or here, we're going to assign a buddy or something like what's required from a sales leader to really create that powerful team? Yeah, I mean, sales teams, sales professionals, I think are, are often competitive by nature. So being really explicit that this is a collaborative situation. And I think there's two directions I'll go with this. One is there's a huge responsibility during that onboarding process to set really clear expectations and not just about what the person's role is, but about those boundaries. Like this is what the criteria is. This is what the territory is so that there's opportunity to be collaborative 
and tension doesn't creep in because these new hires don't unintentionally overstep because they they simply don't have the information they need to to not do that. And then I, I think also, Morgan, like a bit of sort of forced collaboration. And one of my favorite ways to do that is having new hire shadow calls and then having those reps, you know, spend five, 10 minutes after the call to do a download. What didn't make sense? What did you, you know, what really resonated that you'd like to learn more about? I personally learn extremely well by listening to others and then picking the pieces up that, that I want. I think, you know, somebody made a mention of our, our hybrid and remote workforces now. And so having a bit of that forced collaboration where like this new hire will be shadowing your call and then you will be making time to chat with them creates the connections, creates the collaboration. And I, you know, I think accelerates the learning opportunities. Mm. One thing I would like to piggyback off of, we were hearing when we were doing this research that people were doing that, but they were handpicking the people to go in for them to go shadow. They're like, so-and-so, you know, Leslie's actually unreal when it comes to cold calling. You need to listen to how she does cold calls. And like it, it flows so well, like that, that is her superpower. And they would set them up by highlighting their unique strength. And like, you need to go and talk to Tara to really understand how she thinks about the higher level of marketing because the way it, you know, and you go and frame it that way. And it's so interesting to see both people get excited in that moment, not just you have to do this because I'm telling you to do it. Yeah, I love that. A bit of like a recognition element tied in there. Yeah. And like, a, it's almost like a coaching. You're already starting to coach, you know, and give them direction and, and focus on, on both ends too. Like that, like you were kind of talking about expectations, Leslie. So it's like explaining that you're going to talk to Tara about this and she's going to explain marketing strategy. And you did that intentionally because you were trying to tell that person that, hey, this subject matter, this is the person who you think is the best in the organization. So I think that's super important. What's interesting to sort of like flip this back to marketing is, do you find marketers competitive in the same way like sellers are? Or is the team dynamic a little different when it comes to like building and onboarding a marketing team, like fostering that same sort of high performance environment? What are some key ingredients there? Yeah, that's a great question. I've never thought of it like that. So the way that I see the competition is, I think a lot of marketing overlaps. I'm a marketer that thinks brand creates demand. And so just saying that statement, it's like everything rolls into demand if you think about it. And so you can look at event marketing to social media, to product marketing, you know, to email campaigns, and there's overlap in that. And so there can be a little bit of competition, almost like you're stepping on my toes. Because a lot of marketers have like functional, like I'm in charge of social media marketing. I'm in charge of, you know, their specialty. And then if you think about demand gen, and that's my role, it kind of is overseeing a lot of that and really fostering the collaboration effort. I literally think I said this two, two hours ago, but like we win when we win together, when we drive the right pipeline. And it's not like who did this, that idea. It's like, how do we create that alignment? And making it very, very clear for the team is super important. And it isn't siloed. And a lot of marketing teams just naturally are set up siloed. And so that for me, that's like a huge area of focus as a leader to kind of band that together. Because at the end of the day, they are individual contributors a lot of the times or, you know, set up like with managers over this, the content department, but they work very closely with web and design 
But the more we can align together, then you're actually going to have more alignment with sales too. Because if mm -hmm. you're speaking, say the sales manager goes ask the question of the web team, but then you know two days later they're talking to somebody who's in charge of say you know social media, they should have the same answer. But a lot of times they don't. So hmm. yeah, is the reason that they don't have the same answer? Is it because the individual contributors just don't talk to each other, or is it because like leadership, like somebody like yourself, isn't basically? I think Leslie used the term forced collaboration earlier. Is it is not like <laughs> driving that or forcing that from like a leadership level? I think they don't have the answer. The same answer is because of their perspective and honestly, their day to day. So unless they're very strategic and understand each piece and how that's driving. That's it's one of the reasons I love marketing because there's all the different functions. Like if you can create that alignment and drive towards growth together of the same goals, then it works. But if you're missing, you know, you don't have a product marketer, you're missing a huge gap, right? And then everyone's like half doing it. Are we doing the right thing? Who's measuring it? And then you just kind of like lose it. So I really just think it's like from their day to day and how they're looking at their contribution and impact. You're always going to pull for your side, right? It's like SMB to like enterprise accounts to, you know what I mean? You can kind of compare it to other things. Everyone thinks their area is the important area that they're driving, that they're doing something more creative and different and it's working. So, yeah, that's interesting. I really wonder, and I would love to hear how you guys would think about this, but is part of maybe the reason why we're so siloed and there's such a separation between sales and marketing is because it's siloed right from the start. So when I say that we are, as we are talking to people about like what a good onboarding could look like for a seller, because a lot of the time what happens with sales, it's, it's tacit knowledge, it's pattern recognition. And the problem is you got to be put in those experiences to build that. And so like, if you were doing like, if money wasn't an option and like, it, we wanted to grow really fast. Like if I could throw somebody into CS first and do like what you were saying, Leslie, about what did you hear in this conversation? Who, what did you hear about the people that really get it? What are the same, you know, the problems that are coming up? And then you throw them into either like demand or product marketing to shadow. And so they're seeing how, you know, conceptually, how is it done? How is it act the messaging? What does good look like? Because we love to mimic. We're human. And the other part is like deal reviews. Okay. So what did you think the value was when you started? And how did that translate to actually doing that? But the one thing I always hear from sales and marketing is that none of that is done. So if you know, marketing is getting taught from someone that has a different perspective on the market than what sales is. How do we talk? What do you guys think? Should go to market have the same onboarding at some some level so that they have that shared knowledge? I mean, at some level, absolutely. <laughs> I think shadowing everybody and go to market might be tough, I think, because of like ramp period and people needing to get things done. But I do like that idea of like picking and being intentional, like Leslie said, of certain maybe functional areas or specific to that role that make the most sense that kind of cover that broad way. And I always think there's room for improvement. So maybe in the future, there'll be more appetite. I think there's a lot of pressure to get up and running sooner than later um, in this economic climate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that kind of comes into play. And I think some of those opportunities might be more appropriate a bit later, like maybe those aren't first 30 day opportunities because we, we need to move pretty quickly. But at month two, at month three, when I have a better understanding of the product, of the culture, of the go-to-market motion, I think having those conversations would be much more valuable 
because I, you know, early on, I wouldn't know what I did not, like, I wouldn't know what questions necessarily to ask or what I really should be absorbing. Or maybe I wouldn't have the feeling of like psychological safety or trust built to be vulnerable and say, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, you know, I think there are maybe more opportunities a bit later on in, in the onboarding process or as part of like a continuous improvement strategy where there would be a, a tremendous amount of overlap for anybody in that, that GTM motion. One interesting question then for you, Leslie, how do you think about, I don't know, separating, there's not really a division here, what sales enablement is responsible for, for onboarding, and then what the sales manager is responsible for during onboarding for sellers? She's coming out with the hard questions. Yeah, we're talking about this a little bit pre-call. Morgan! I have, me personally, I've literally um, never worked at a company that's had like a proper sales enablement department. I've worked for, in terms of them being my clients, but I've never actually worked, worked at. I think predominantly, and some of this is maybe coming from my personal experience, that a lot of that should be owned by the sales leadership team and I know it's a big lift and I know it's a big ask, but like it's I mean it's quite literally your job. So <laughs> that's that's a piece of it. But like if if you aren't making time, like you just ask somebody to give you their career for however long they're gonna stay with your company. And then you welcome in the door that new hire and then immediately pass them off to somebody else. I think it sends all the wrong messages. And the likelihood that that person came to work for you and wants to learn from you is probably pretty high. So just for, for so many reasons, you need to be very available to new hires, particularly in that first 30 days. You know, I, I think there's, there's space for both enablement and the leader to play a role in onboarding. But I think a, the majority of the owners should fall on the sales leader. I love that take. And here, I mean, let's mirror this. Marketing doesn't have something called marketing enablement, right? Like you, Tara, are responsible or uh, somebody beneath you is responsible if, at, you know, however the management structure is laid out, is responsible for onboarding each of the individual marketers, right? Yeah, I would say to people that don't invest the time and think it really through, you got to go back to like, why did you hire them though? You know, it's like, it, like, it sounds kind of like direct and pretty brutal, but it's, it's true. You invested the time and the effort. Recruiting is hard work in itself, right? And you want it to work out, right? You want them to be successful. So I look at it like one of those things when you're like going through like a really big project or even like a tech implementation, it's tough. It's very challenging. I can think of specific ones in my career that I was like working so many hours and you got to see the light. You like see the light at the end of the tunnel and you just keep going because you know that it's going to get better. And that's a little bit of onboarding from a leadership perspective. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of investment to Leslie's point. You have to be available. There's so many questions running through someone's mind and it's your job to clarify for them. And like no question is, you know, is crazy. So you really need to talk that through and make sure that they are having a good experience at the end of the day because you want them part of your team and you want them to be part of the go-to-market um, and have a great experience. It's a reflection directly on your company first and foremost and yourself. So I think it's one of the most crucial things you can do as a leader is even if it doesn't work out in the end for whatever reason, it's still having them have the best employee experience that they can. 
So it's hard as a, as a marketing team because you are the enablement. <laughs> you have to think through all of that. But the good thing is, is you have hopefully trusted other leaders and departments who you can say like, hey, product, can you give them a specialized personalized demo from a marketing point of view? Can you go over like value messaging? You can give them pointers of how you want those other departments to really help you with the onboarding. I have a question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I have uh, predominantly worked for UK based companies. And so I have been like remotely onboarded forever and by people in dramatically different time zones, often where there isn't a lot of overlap. And so my question that I was, I was just thinking while I was listening to you is what is the responsibility of that sales or marketing professional who has sought out a remote role? What is their responsibility to take some additional ownership? for being proactive, for managing up, for kind of crafting a bit of their own onboarding experience? Like, I, I don't know, throwing it out there. Good question. I love it. I would say I'm, <laughs> I'm qualified to answer because my last two uh, roles, I've been fully remote. So <laughs> mm. yeah. Yep. So from my perspective, I think being like clear with expectations so what I tend to do is no matter what it is, if it's like an intra call, a training, an overview is, <laughs> it's funny, I could bring up my word doc right now, but I have like a question section and then like action items. And these are for me at the end of the day. And so then when I meet with my boss the next time around, I'll go over them. And this is just a system that I've kind of created, but I've also shared that with people that I'm responsible for onboarding on my team. It's like, hey, as you go through, you know, jot down your notes of like action items that you want to take and how I can help you take them. Or is it just questions? You have to be very vocal and really ask for what you need, especially remote time zones. My this revenue grid and get accept. There's a lot of European based employees. So I'm used to that. And it's also being very conscious of people's time too, of knowing when you can fit it into everybody's schedule. So being flexible and asking for what you need. The one part about is like that performance benchmark too, like the, both your realization and then that being realized by the company. And I, I'm Leslie, I'm sure you'll appreciate this. Like I look at sales managers as coaches. That's what they should be. Good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at enablement as that support. But I think one thing that enablement could do is provide that framework for performance benchmarking, not based on what you know, the top producers are doing or people that are already ramped, but people that started it with similar backgrounds, where what is that performance benchmark to highlight where where they're starting from? So that the sales manager has a coach coaching rubric essentially built out based on that individual. And we talk about that too. Like, so if you got handed that, it would be a little nerve-wracking. But could you imagine that being remote and saying, hey, you know, we want to go and invest in you. So here's this core skills that are experiences that we know that are going to go and drive success and help you make good money and love your job. Where, how do you think you rank based on these scales and something that's a little bit more human that, you know, doesn't just hang you out to dry. But I think that would have been really interesting to have something like that starting to really, and as a sales manager, that would be great too, because it takes time to really invest into someone to understand their unique strengths and where are those gaps that you can support them. And I think that even ties into someone's question earlier, like how long is onboarding? Well, you know, part of it, the learning and development should never end or else, you know, our mental models do need to be updated. Could, could you like, could you imagine if like selling like we did 20 years ago? 
or marketing for that well, matter. We wouldn't be on LinkedIn Live. We never showed. I really, really like that. And like, I, I like it from both a strict competency perspective where you're like, here's the list of competencies that we have found to be most valuable for this role. And here's like the level of acumen we want you to have in each of them. And, you know, here's maybe three you're already super strong at. Here's a few that you're you're close. You know, here's two we really want you to focus in on. So giving some of that visibility. And it also made me think of something that I have really valued as I've been onboarded and that I've had, you know, my employees report back to me is not just saying, here's your set of tasks to accomplish, but here's your set of tasks. And after you've accomplished them, you should be able to do X, comfortably talk about the product, like explore, whatever it is mm. so that they yeah. have the knowledge of like, if they finish the tasks and they don't feel like they can do that thing, to, to know that it's time to come back and be like, hey, I missed a trick or I need some extra work on this. Or can you put me in touch with another cross-functional partner that can talk through this? Because I, I don't think I digested it properly on the first go. Oh, think of that with technology in the tech stack. And Lisa had a brilliant point that plays into this of like that end-to-end -end process. How many times do we, and I like marketing, like how many sellers understand what marketing does and vice versa? from it, like end to end process, or even like on demand, like what does that handoff look like? Mm -hmm. I think that Lisa, such a great point. You know, you're getting a tech stack, you get a new CRM and they're like, yeah, I know how to use a CRM. I don't need to be onboarded on the CRM, but half of that onboarding is this is how it works. But nobody says this is the process in which this needs to be used. And I think that like talking about what you're just talking about competencies, I think that's the biggest failure is like, why does it matter? Yeah. I don't know how many times somebody's like, you should go and use this. It's better. Why? Why is it better? What workflow is it part of? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you're using it differently. Like look at CRMs now. People are using ones that have sequencers built in. Well, that's a complete, that's a new workflow that is now attaching to your reference system CRM. So right. I think that's the hardest part because it's so, we have so many moving parts in our jobs now. If we don't know that workflow and we don't know what, like you're even saying, like what good looks like and what I need to understand. I think that's the most uncomfortable part about being an employee is you don't feel like you're part of it. You don't understand what's expected of you and you don't know what to do. So what do you do? In remote, they hide because they don't know how to deal with it. And it can be hugely humbling. Like I might know how to use Salesforce, but that does not mean that I know how to use Salesforce the way this organization wants me to use Salesforce. So being like, you know, a 15 year sales pro in of like a VP position having to be like, pardon me, can, can you show me? And it's like probably something so silly and so simple, Yeah. but there is an element of like humble thyself in your new role so that you can ask those questions about like, where does this fit in? Or am I doing this right? Or this is how I used to do this. Am I dragging and dropping that? Or is, is there a different application mm. that you need me to learn? Yeah, I think especially marketing, onboarding, we need to do a better job of, like you were saying, like complete this task. Okay, check, check, check. And I think sales by nature, because it makes sense that you're going to do more of like training and feedback before you just like throw them out there to be doing demos and calls and messaging with marketing. It's very different where it's just like, you have access, you have access, walk through. Okay, done. And nobody's really going through the training of like, okay, when you set up a campaign, this is what you do. This is who you involved in like hands-on training is something that I don't think most marketing 
on board, like programs do very well. And it's more of like, here's access. This is the person that you can go to for questions. Ready, set, get to work. And can be very humbling and overwhelming, honestly, at every single level. But it's kind of like, that's marketing in a nutshell a little bit. You just like learn by doing. So it's a lot of it, it's, it's that nature. But I think there's opportunity for improvement there for sure. I was actually going to ask about that because it's it's interesting to hear like, or to to have been a part of marketing onboarding before and then to hear and to work with sellers who are getting onboarded. It's to me a very different experience. And I don't know if it's because of the exact skill sets that need to be used in each of the functional roles or if it's the, the nature of the work. Like a lot of times I think about somebody who's getting brought on to do social media content inside of a company. Maybe there's somebody a little more entry level, but chances are they probably, right, you're probably hiring somebody who has written social media content before. They probably use the platforms that you're publishing on. And so now it, in some ways, it is just, here's permission to our accounts. Let's work on our strategy. Let's get a content calendar together. Here's our overarching plan. Whereas in sales, there's not really a one-to-one comparison for that kind of role, you know, an SDR getting onboarded, who maybe even has a number of years of experience being an SDR, like their whole toolkit changes, right? They're talking about a very different product. Maybe they're on a different, not only are they on maybe a different sales engagement platform, but they're, you know, it's not a one-to-one. And I'm fascinated by that difference, just for the record, because I think it leads to these different approaches that we take in, in our teams. You know what that did made me think of, and like Nick, you mentioned this earlier about what pieces of onboarding should be the exact same Mm. and the customer stories. Amen. I mean, frankly, I think that's something that neither sales or marketing get enough of, but I know from, you know, talking to my marketing people that they often don't get as much of that, like immediate access to, to shadowing calls with customers, whether it's with an AE or with a CSM to really not just understanding the product, like whatever, we can all learn a product, but getting those pieces of like why it matters and the impact it's made on our real life customers so that we can take that conversation and use their own words in our go-to-market motions. I mean, that's something that teams should definitely be doing more of an onboarding that could look the exact same for sales and marketing, I think. Oh, that empathy that you get from having that understanding of knowing what that journey looks like. Actually, that's a great question. I, I've never been through, I've never heard of, never been through marketing onboarding. Do you get to actually see the full customer journey of not just like plotted out on a map, but do you actually get to see how your work translates? So like an inbound, what does that look like? How did what you did translate to what that handoff looked like and how that SDR or that AE started that conversation? Does that get included in your type of onboarding or I guess marketing's onboarding? Sorry. It depends. Typically, if it's a good marketer, they're going to ask for it. Uh, if it's not included, I was laughing because I have it on my own list of listen to prospect calls, listen to customers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, again, going back to like specialized areas a little bit depending on who you're talking to. But to your point, Nick, I think it's super important. Even if you're the web manager and you're pretty much never going to speak to a customer or a prospect to hear that perspective, you need to have all those perspectives, right? I always say like as marketers, we're not on the front lines typically, you know, so we need to have all of that knowledge. We build the personas, you do the market research, but you can learn so much 
from understanding the journey from prospect to customers. Mm -hmm. I used to run a team that was customer marketing and I loved it, loved it. Cause I was able to talk to customers all the time and just like hearing them firsthand of, even if it was a problem for one customer and didn't resonate and didn't scale, it was still exciting to me because I was like, I'm like talking to the person who uses our tech and then go off and brainstorm with my team because otherwise marketers are just brainstorming amongst themselves on in the funnel being like, should we do this? Should we do that? Should we do that for the persona? What about VPS? You know, so it's like, you're not talking to a real life human, right? And then typically you go to your sales team and bounce the ideas off. And if you have a good sales and marketing alignment, they're very truthful, let's hope, um, and give you feedback, but that always doesn't happen, right? So I think even if, depending on the, the role, at least listening to the prospect and customer calls, I think you need to do both sides of the equation though. We could talk about this for a while, but like the full customer journey, a lot of marketers on board and only listen to prospect calls because mm. there's so much emphasis on net new business, but it's very important to also listen to the customer from a retention standpoint as well. Arguably more important if you're a renewable yeah. model. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's it's crazy how much onboarding sometimes it's not there. Mm -hmm. What do you think? It, maybe that's why targeting both on sales and marketing is so... I don't want to say sloppy because that's not fair, but it's so scattered Yeah. because we, because like, you know, if you're thinking of like, okay, here's your market, here's in market, here's your customer and here's your repeat customer. Where is this criteria created from mm -hmm. sales development and demand? Well, usually it's, a, you know, most of it looks like Tam. They're like, oh, headcount industry, you know, yeah. this geography, like, you know, and it's like, well, what if we just went and did like a win loss or looked at or who are our best customers or talk to CS? I don't know how many times I've, accidentally bumped into CS at the water cooler back when that was an option. And you're like, please never take a customer like this again. Why? And they explain it to you. And it, it those conversations are what change everything. You're like, oh, so they yeah. didn't see the value as I expected. Okay, well, let's, maybe let's not target them anymore. <laughs> right? The customer experience is something that you can't ever put too much emphasis on, I think. You know, I always say like, the reason you're in business is because of your customers. Yeah. Like every business. So if you just like keep going back to that and reminding, because you can get all this feedback from prospects, but if you think about it, they're not using your technology yet. So you got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. It'd be interesting to run that. Like Leslie, what do you think if instead of run, like a sales kickoff, what if you did like an onboarding go-to-market kickoff as part of a growth play? And so you're like, okay, we're going to focus on this vertical. Here's the industry trends that are driving this, bring in a you know, subject matter expert, have product marketing, have demand, like all these different elements and onboard that way, you can even reboard like that. Cause I think of like how that would have changed some of the campaigns and careers, like my career in certain companies. Cause I realized that so all the stuff was hidden in different places. So I couldn't move fast cause I was trying to find that information so I could just do my job. And kind of like they were, you know, we saw in the comments is like understanding the why and I didn't know why, so I couldn't do it. So I'm sure there was a couple of people that blocked me in those days. <laughs> Look, Tara, something that you said was it's on your personal list or a good marketer would make sure that they're asking for those customer st stories. And I, like, I think that really highlights the fact that it's not always the default mm -hmm. to be given those customer stories. And like in sales, we're often asked to shadow other sales calls. 
but not as often pushed to shadow those CSM calls when that's when you're really hearing, like, why did you buy? What are you using? What are the success stories? Why are you choosing to renew and give us more of your money? And those are like the meaty things that you can then take back to your net new logo calls to, you know, to I think have much more meaningful conversations. I was on a, a webinar yesterday actually with the sales hacker team about SKOs um, and we were making like a live do and don't list. And one of the big things that Scott in- Ingram brought up that I just thought was so smart was inviting your best customers in for your SCO and having them share just like a 10 minute overview of why they are an evangelist for your brand and then giving space to the team to ask questions. And that blew my mind. I thought it was an exceptional idea. And I think it, it like it really loops into the conversation we're having. Yeah, I would raise that, that instead of the SKO, it needs to be revenue. You need to invite the other parts of the go-to-market team that I've seen a lot of tech companies change, which makes a lot of sense. Because it's like, why wouldn't the marketing leaders be at a sales kickoff? The cross-functional kickoffs are definitely better. It's yeah, so it's like, in general, like when you say it out loud, you're like, this yeah. is crazy that we're not, <laughs> at least it, it might not be all of it. You know what I mean? I understand like the agenda, but it's like, okay, we all talk about it all the time, alignment and this and this and this. And it's like, just listening in, it's so important to understand, like, this is what sales is doing for their growth, their priority, their pipeline, their revenue. This is how they're getting their strategic initiatives. Okay, marketing. And that's when you uncover, are we aligned or not? Yeah. Even just listening to each other without like working through it, just listening and learning. So anyways, <laughs> I was going to field a question about this. This is great because okay. I do feel like there's this obvious Venn diagram here. And, you know, there's definitely back to your initial list, Tara, of like people, process and tech. The further we get into our own domains, a lot of it has to do with the very niche, you know, tech uses or the very niche process parts of what it means to run a paid campaign, for example, like the SDR does not need to know that. Or the account executive certainly is not going to be onboarded on running paid campaigns and also vice versa, like demo calls or the exact ways that the CRM or the sales engagement platform is handling lead management and nurture sequences. Like those things aren't, those are on the further outsides of the Venn diagram. But then there seems to be this very big, obvious middle where it's because uh, you had said like brand is business. And so it's this big pool of things about customers and problems and prospects that every team needs to learn. So if you both had paintbrushes and could just like paint your way, and maybe this comes from your own experience too, where should that live? Who's responsible for that kind of knowledge inside of a company? And where should that knowledge live for all of the revenue team? Man, you and your questions say more than wow. (laughs) (laughs) Really taking it easy on us. (laughs) It's Friday. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I mean, I think some of it should live in the CRM. There should be a single source of truth and it should be a database that literally everybody in the entire organization has access to who's responsible for like the data cleanliness, the ad, like making sure it actually happens and then making sure that there is some sort of like simplicity and being able to get that valuable information back to people. I think that's a a much harder question. I mean, maybe that's where sales enablement could really play like an incredible role in the onboarding training process, not necessarily doing the training, but saying like, here's where the things live that 
other new hires have found especially valuable. Like if you want Mm -hmm. additional customer stories, if you want a list of the reasons that people on or, you know, renewed or onboarded last year, like here's the additional information that you can consume at your own pace. Yeah, I agree. I think there has to be almost like a project manager owner, but they're not a full owner. Like there's no way they could be a full owner. So like setting that expectation of who's like managing, but they're really managing the content and other people to step up and do their job. So cat herders, basically. Yeah. They're herding cats. Yeah. Inside. Does anybody find it interesting that in a conversation about onboarding, we have never talked about HR? <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up. I was going to see if we got there. Cause like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, do they, ha- do they have a role to play in onboarding? Have, have any of you ever worked for organizations where HR has played an active role in the onboarding process above and beyond like the sort of first few days, like paperwork and access pieces? That's what I look at is paperwork. You know, it'd be an interesting role for HR to play Tell me. is to go and circle back and say, the way you were pitched this job description and this role, does it align with the truth? Because hmm. the biggest thing I hear on onboarding from reps is I got sold shit. I see. Like you told me, oh, I can make unlimited money and I'm going to go and have this base and you're going to have all these resources and it's going to be so easy. And then Leslie, you know how that goes. And then it's the <laughs> hardest job you've ever had and you want to rip your hair out. But <laughs> it would be really interesting as HR is doing compliance to circle back mm-hmm. because who's owning recruiting? It's usually HR. And the hardest part about recruiting is you're hiring for something you've never done or not. So literally what we're talking about on like journey is people that have never been through that journey, hiring yeah. people trying to say that they're good or not. Well, where's that feedback loop? Yeah. So is that whether it's marketing or HR, whoever owns that job description or that however that got, wherever it got placed, what does that look like? Did it align? Did it meet the, you know, was the promises fulfilled? Yeah. I think that'd be really interesting for HR to play that if they're owning recruiting. Other than that, I think HR is compliance and recruiting. That's the two pieces. And I think it should be handed off either to enablement or the manager after. Let me push back on that a little bit because I, I don't disagree, Okay, but your HR people probably have gone to university for things like organizational design and talent development, they may have accreditation, like, you know, they may have their their CLEs that they're still getting, and they should have expertise in what a good onboarding process looks like in terms of how folks can consume information, like how much, at which pace, what good milestones should look like. And I just don't often see that happening. Like I don't see that reality in organizations. Like sales managers are like, go train, go onboard. We're given absolutely no train. Like we're suddenly just like HR professionals that have some sort of core expertise in knowing what onboarding looks like the moment we get promoted to manager. But we have these business partners in HR who very literally probably went to uni to learn those things that we don't often leverage or that that's like not the culture is to have that cross-functional collaboration in that way. Tara, what was your experience like? I would say, I don't think I've ever been part of an onboarding that HR had a very big role, to be honest. I don't know if they should. That's my other take on it. I think they can be there for, you know, the, the obvious things, the paperwork, compliance, all security, like everything Nick mentioned. But 
I think they're there more as like support and guidance. And the biggest thing is feedback. If you can create an environment of trust and open feedback, whether the new employee is willing to give that to their direct manager, a lot won't, right? But then having that other person outside checking in on them, understanding what we could do better, what they really enjoyed. And I really like the job description idea too, of like within a certain amount of time, 30, 60 days, whatever it is, is like, what what did we miss? This is what we expect of you. What what did we do really well? You know, what should we continue doing? What should we stop doing? Mm. Where are there gaps? And like really trying to understand that from the new employee experience. And I think you need to follow like, not that it has to be my framework, but like not like people process, like there's a lot that goes into onboarding. It's like the feeling of inclusion. Like there's so many elements to that that are like soft skills too. And then like the hard skills. And I personally think the employee would probably be most open to like an HR people and culture type of team if you have some very open and transparent leaders. So what's interesting to me about this too is like, Personally, I really hate the term people ops. I think it's like the weirdest way to describe organizing a company. Like people are not operations, nor are they like little, you know, pieces on a chessboard for you to move around. So it's like a really weird way to describe an HR function. But I have seen some people ops teams like go that extra mile. And I saw Lisa uh, had commented about HR collaborating with department heads to create those onboarding experiences. I know we have we had a live show with uh, two enablement professionals who talked about HR's role as orientation to the company, but then onboarding actually happens at a functional level. But I think, Leslie, what you brought up is a really something I'm going to have to think about and we'll have to poke around more on, which is like these people have expertise mm. in organizational design, obviously, right? And either through experience, through training or a mix. And why can't we put that to good use? And especially for these poor, as you joked, like sales managers who are supposed to be experts <laughs> in this the moment they get a job title change, like that's ridiculous. And we know that's ridiculous. And the same, I'm sure, goes in marketing too, Tara, where oh, yeah. you know you were a paid campaign manager, now you're the head of digital marketing. And you're like, wait, 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 I can do the execution yeah. side, but like, what about this, you know, yeah. hiring and training and onboarding side? Yeah. It's also interesting when you become a manager the level of training you get or you don't get. And a lot of the training goes into just like managing another person or a team, you know? And then like everything else that you do from like onboarding or even offboarding, like you just kind of make up, honestly, right? (laughs) Unless unless you have a really good mentor or an HR team, like it's typically not an area that you focus on, right? So. Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting point because it's like, yeah. So, you know, like if we say who owns culture, so if culture is owned by HR, then maybe, you know, HR plays that bigger role. But maybe the the thing to ask is, should HR be training managers? And I don't know, like, Leslie, you I, I mean, I just... It's a good question. I don't, you know, train of thought thinking. I just, things are in my head and then they're out of my mouth. I mean, I've never been in an organization where HR did more than like, you know, paperwork, compliance, maybe feedback, depending on how active they were. I think that there could be a bit of a, a trick missed. And maybe it's it's most certainly not them training our staff how to sell. That's not the right role. But something that I think we can all agree on is one of the struggles 
with the professionalization of sales is that too often it's just the top performers that are put into management. Yep. And then once folks get into management, we're not often given the resources and the skill sets to be a great manager. And we have this entire business unit who probably went to college for it at the very least has been doing it for longer than a new manager who aren't doing any training, who aren't onboarding us as managers into our new role as that that leader, that recruiter, the person interviewing, the person onboarding. So I don't know. I'm not sure I have an opinion one way, one way or another, but yeah, something to dig into. Maybe there's a, a trick being missed that could help accelerate that growth because we would be better managers and trainers for onboarding. You know, one thing I wanted to ask before our time expires today is... In both of your experiences, how has a great onboarding experience, either for yourself or maybe pat yourself on the back, that's fine with that, somebody you helped onboard or or that you were a part of, have basically provided measurable results to the organization? Like, is there a story that you have in mind that really stands out? Leslie's nodding. We'll start with you. Yeah. I have a story because it's like a bullet point on my CV. My very first job out of college, super, super transactional sales environment, like one call closed 24 to 48 hours at most. And so the the onboarding was three days of like intensive classroom style training. And then they just were given a desk and a phone. Very aggressive. It's the, my first job out of college is the onboarding I went through. Like talk about humble thyself and um, just pure terror. So I took it upon myself after becoming a manager to redo all of the training documents, to stretch it out over five days, to make the days shorter, to make the sessions more interactive, which I mean, was just a lot of Googling, like, what is good to, I'd never done that before, but the results were wild. Like, I'm not sure what the exact bullet point was. I haven't looked for a job, but it was something like the average number of deals per rep was like 2.8 before. And when you looked at six months after coming out of training for new reps, it went up to like 3.8. I mean, like it almost double just from like, like making it more about them giving them a couple extra days, like putting them and their experience at the center instead of the company wanting to like get that two extra days on the phone. Um, And obviously the results were significantly higher performance because they had a little bit more time to talk about and digest and learn the product and the sales process before being asked to apply it. Um, So I'm particularly proud of, of that one. Nice. Good job. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh boy. Yeah. Well, I as a geez, I'm like as a marketer that measures everything, I'm gonna go with something that's not that measurable. But I do have to give props to Get Accept, my last company, from an onboarding experience from a culture perspective. And I say that. I was fully remote, but the way that the onboarding experiences, it's the same for everybody. It's a straight two weeks. It doesn't matter what role, your responsibility in their live trainings. And so every department head or even, you know, a sub-function of that department, they do it in cohorts. So even if you start at the beginning of the month, you just like wait till the next, you know, cohort. And so you have other employees that you can go to that do that same two weeks with you. But 
the fact that everybody from the CEO to one of the co-founders to the VP of engineering to sales to market, like whatever function you're in, they take the time out of their day to go over from a live perspective, go over the stack that they do with everybody. You could easily say, hey, everybody, you know, like read through this material, listen to this. But it's like they make it interactive. There's Q&A. There's like breakout rooms. There's like quizzes after to mm. really acknowledge that people, you know, really matter and drive the business and that you're, it's your very, one of your first points, Leslie, like you're important. We hired you. We want you to be happy. And so I thought that was absolutely incredible because then you're two weeks in and you know the cohort and you already know every single department head, who they are, what their team does, people on their team join. I just thought it was incredible. And that's before you get to your functional area on your own with your leader. So um, I think that's one of the main reasons that the culture is so, so strong because it starts off and you're just like impressed (laughs) every single day. And it's not just all about business. There's a lot of, you know, icebreakers get to know you, things like that, fun um, elements to it as well. So you really feel like you, you belong. Mm. Wow. What a great way to circle back full circle to human first, starting with people and onboarding. Tara, Leslie, thank you so much for joining today. It was lovely to have you. I learned a lot. There's some great stories here. There's some great spicy takes. Some things obviously we all get to think about moving forward too, which is always the best in these sorts of roundtable conversations. And uh, Nick, did you want to close us out? Yeah, I just want to say thank you. I've never had this conversation like we kind of at the start, we said sales and marketing. And it was really interesting to go and put the minds together and hear this. And just thank you so much for being here and doing this with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we'll (laughs) be back for sequin jackets. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we'll coordinate. coordinate. (laughs) I like it. Alignment, sales and marketing alignment. (laughs) Love it. Thanks, everyone. Happy Friday. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Hey, we know how hard implementing this stuff is. That's why this podcast exists. We decided to take it a step further and start the OneUp Club to give you the frameworks and resources you need to move the dial in 2023. Learn more at b2bpowerhour.com slash join. Because we know you have a quota and you can't afford to wait.